Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. frankly, but we have to make sure we're on the same page on this stuff. That's the first thing. Secondly, um, some of the, if you've had me teach you some of this stuff, you've seen some of these slides before. Uh, don't reason to go against the good thing. So, um, here's Charles Darwin. Yeah. Up here. Yeah. Right. And there's my son, Jonathan David Darwin Brush. King of the hill. Watching King of the Hill. Uh, if you've ever met Jonathan, he's much bigger than that now. <laughs> that tall. He's a giant of a man. Yes, he's watching King of the Hill on an old standard definition television in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. Still at that table. Still have that. In fact, his TV now is on that TV stand, and that where three besides. Wow, it all comes together, doesn't it? And there's the couch that we eventually threw out. I'll just tell you this. When Maddie was two, she drew on the back of the fridge. She drew Barney the Dinosaur in permanent marker. <laughs> uh, and then was asked if she did it, and she said no. So that was, uh, I love little kids. Little kids can't lie, and it's wonderful. Uh, it's a neat moment when kids eventually learn to lie because they. Like they can make a somewhat plausible lie that's theory of mind. But when they're young like that, they, and then you look at them and go, oh, "You did it!" And they always have this look on their face, like, "Gosh, are you magic? Are you can you read minds? How did you know?" And I said I didn't do it, so that's a bit of interesting. Um, so yeah, I mean, I wanted to name uh, John actually Darwin was his first name, but that was overruled by, by, the, by the two permanent members of the Security Council. So uh, anyway. So this is a, I love this quote. I've said it many times before. Uh, theory of natural selection is so simple that anyone can misunderstand it. I've talked about this, uh, in, in, uh, quoted this a lot of times. Uh, no one knows who said it, uh, but it's true. So Charles Darwin saw three problems and gave a solution. Right. We really haven't done this, right? Okay. The beginning of the year... I've always some very similar lectures in many courses, and I get like all confused. I don't know where I am, but I look. We haven't done this. Okay. Come in. Sit down. Relax. So uh, there were three problems in the solution. Generally, uh, naturalists saw. Okay. And Darwin wasn't the only one to see these problems. These were everybody who's a naturalist saw. And naturalists are what I like. Some people might say biologists, I don't want to call anybody biologist before origins get published. Um, so the first problem is there's change in time, the flora and fauna of the Earth. What the average person would call evolution today. Right? It's the change itself. Uh, the fossil record showed this. People knew this from the, in the mid-1800s. You'd find people were finding fossils all the time. And they'd say, well, this isn't here anymore. I don't see any short, three-toed horses anymore. Right? Remember, you know, you get this tiny horsey guy. Right? Or even knowing that mammoths were around. Um, 
And you get into the later on after Origins is published, you know, Archaeopteryx is discovered when it was the first bird. Right? It's the name of one of my computers, Archaeopteryx, but not that one. That one's named Proto Avis. Um, they're all bird relatives, ancient bird relatives. This is this is Gasornus. That, that, well, that really shouldn't be something I'm talking about. But anyway, so this was a controversial in Darwin's time. Um, people saw plants and animals in the fossil record that don't exist anymore. There must have been change. Why? This isn't controversial now unless you don't pay attention to things and have never read a book. This is something. There are things now that weren't around then, and there are things then that aren't around now. It's pretty simple. Anybody who thinks that we lived together with dinosaurs 6,000 years ago, again, should read a book, other than the one book that they're reading, if you get my drift. Um, so the second problem is taxonomic relationship among living things. And the biggest thing that people did, that naturalists did back before Origins is published, is they classify things, because that's all they could do. What else are you going to do? You have no theory to put everything together, so you're out collecting, well, you know, Darwin goes out of the Beagle, and he collects samples. That's his job. He's the naturalist. And he, the reason he's given this gig is because he's known throughout England as the best field naturalist around. So he goes around, he collects, like if people are collecting bugs, he gets more bugs than anybody. If people are looking at the grasses, he can, can classify more than anybody else. He's better than anybody. Right? So, people wonder though, why is that the case? There's different, you know, it's clear that a house cat and a lion and a tiger and a, let's uh, go civet, um, Ocelot, are all cats, right? It's clear that, oh, we have all these different grasses, <clears throat> but wheat isn't, you know, like the kind of grass we have on our lawn, but they're all, but they're both grasses. And then there's, there's trees that are coniferous and tree trees that are deciduous, whatever. So, this relationship and the question is why? Right? How did this happen? What's, you know, or as you know, Seinfeld would have said, what's the deal? Anyway, on airplane peanuts. Some of these are just for me. Um, third problem is adaptation. This is also strange. Um, there's different kinds of teeth for different animals, right? So carnivores have ripping teeth. Omnivores have both kinds. Uh, herbivores have the sort of grinding down teeth, and omnivores like us, we've got both. Also, even within species. Within a species. So, my eyes, even my eyes, are much better at seeing than my, my heart is. And my heart does a way better job pumping blood than my eyes do. Right? The thing is, they're both parts of a human. Now, these three problems have a potential solution if you answer the question like this, God did it. That's an answer, but it's not a satisfactory answer. And why is it not scientifically satisfactory? Well, it's not scientifically satisfactory because you still aren't explaining the mechanism. 
Okay? You gotta remember that most people then were pretty religious. The idea of at least publicly saying, oh God, was not something people did. Darwin probably was an atheist. You can read the stuff that he wrote, his private correspondence, it seems pretty clear he wasn't very fond there at the beginning of the church, and then later on of there being a God. You take a look at the movie uh, Creation, the 2009 movie about the Darwin biography, it's tremendous. Uh, and it's very well researched. Um, it's based on a couple of really good biographies of Darwin. And he was pretty disillusioned with religion in general, and probably with the idea of there being a God. You should really check the movie, I should have So for Darwin, clearly that's not going to be an answer, but even for his friends and colleagues, like in the Royal Society, they are religious men, because they're all men. I don't know when the first woman got in the Royal Society, but I don't think it was in the 1850s. Um, even if you said to a religious person, God did it, they'd look at you and go, yeah, but how? Right, what's the mechanism? So you don't have to be have an atheistic worldview to say that the idea that God did it is not a satisfactory explanation. You see, you see what I'm making? Okay, you need a little subtle bit of a fine point, but it doesn't. First of all, I think the two worldviews can live together. Okay? Uh, they don't need, but they don't have to not live together. Um, my mother was taught evolution by natural selection by nuns in a Catholic church, uh, Catholic school in Montreal in the late 1950s. And she was taught like this. So these are the rules that God set up. Well, that's fine, right? But, and that's what these guys would have wanted. Fine, God, God did it. It's not really a very good answer because you could also say, why, you know, how does uh, electricity flow? Well, God makes it. Well, okay, but how? Right? It's not a good answer. So you can certainly believe in the supernatural being the creator of everything, yada, yada, yada. But, and I wasn't trying to eat yada, yada, anybody's belief system. Um, anybody gets offended by this, I'm trying so hard not to be, so to hell with you. But, um, the thing is, it's not a satisfactory answer. See the point of making, does that make sense? Questions about that? Do you see that? I mean, because it's kind of subtle, and because we're so influenced by uh, American media generally, uh, who seem to think that this is the devil's work. Right? Okay. Good enough. So there's a solution, and natural selection provides the mechanistic explanation of how this happened. Of, to solve these three problems. That's the cool thing about it, right? And then they're related. These are these things are related. They aren't just one thing on their own. It's not here's the the, the, the solution to problem one. Here's the solution to problem two. Here's the solution to problem three. It is oh, here's a simple explanation. It shows they're all related. The neat thing about it, like almost anything that's really cool in science. When Darwin publishes Origins in 1858, everybody's like, oh, of course, why didn't I think of that? Because that's obviously how it works. And the amazing thing is, this book sells out on its first day. All its first printing sells out. That doesn't happen 
to popular science books, much less this is not this is not written. This is not the 1858 equivalent of I fucking love science on Facebook. This is a real science. Okay, this is a real science book. This is a real science book. This is this is written for professionals. Okay, this would be it'd be like I don't know. It'd be like if the textbook for a course you're taking sells out to the general public on the first day and the first printing's done. That doesn't happen. People were really hungry for scientific explanations of things. That's the thing. That was happening at the time. The sort of the industrial revolution's hitting its peak. You've got science and technology explaining everything. And now we're explaining the origin of life or the origin of species of life. Wow, pretty impressive. People were reading it on the subway or the tube on the way home on the Like it was that popular. Anybody who could read was reading this book. So that's one of the reasons it's very hard to find a first edition of Origins. You just can't. By the way, if you, if you have, don't have a copy of Origins, just download a free copy because it's out of copyright. You're not doing anything illegal. Go to, um, if you go to like an ebook store kind of thing and it's going to charge you for it, don't pay for it. Find a free copy. There's a free one in the iBook store for the iPad and the iPhone. And then Mac computers, there are, there are I believe, free copies at the, uh, what's it called? There's one that I don't believe, it's archive.org has free copies. So there's no reason to ever pay for a copy of Origins. Except if, some, you know, I got one as a gift from a student once, which was neat. Um, and I think a very close friend of mine who um, gave, it, gave it to me as a Christmas present, actually, my honor to be a student in 1997. And we were going out for New Year's Eve with me and his girlfriend at the time, and it is not. And we were going out for New Year's Eve, and we brought Maddie with us because she was free. Uh, and we're going to his place, and he gives me this book. And it's like, this is wow, well, this is so nice. And I open it up, and it says, uh, you know, keep on keeping on, Chucky D. Sounds like. um, <laughs> but the amazing thing is, this, this will sound like I'm making this up, but this actually happened. So we had a few drinks, and we're walking down the street from, from our place. We took, I think, the bus downtown, and we're going to this guy's mom's place. Um, and we're going to have a little New Year's Eve party, hang out, whatever. Pretty casual thing, just the four of us and a kid, so it wasn't that crazy. That, by the way, was the same night or New Year's Eve where I stood in line to buy gin uh, at the Churchill Plaza liquor store holding Natalie in my arm for 45 minutes. So I'm dedicated to Jim. <laughs> so, and a hell of a parent, obviously. So, walking along, and there's two guys, and they're, you know, sort of a knock on the door about their religion guys. I don't know what religion it was. And that's fine, because those guys have a right to walk down the street as much as I do. And they walk, they're obviously having fun, because it's New Year's Eve, and the guys were walking along the street, and my friend Jeremy has just given me this book. And the guy stops us and he says, have you read this book? And it's the Bible. And I said, have you read this one? <laughs> and it's the greatest moment of my life and it's all downhill from there. <laughs> but that actually happened. And I, I can, we, can, uh, we can ask Isabel, we can ask uh, Jeremy Cardiff, who's an old honor student of mine. This is literally happening. I thought to myself, after that, Jeremy looked at me and he said, you know, no one's ever going to believe this, and this is probably the greatest thing that's ever happened to you. I said, oh, I know. This was amazing. It's just, it was like, how did that happen? It's like somebody wrote it. It's like I had a team of writers behind me. We'll get these guys to come up to him. 
So I do have a copy of Origins that's written down, but I, I don't use it. I use my, the, one on my iPad. So don't, don't pay for one. You should get a copy. Um, I think biology and psychology students should just read Origins. I think it's an important book to read. At times, it's very well written. He lays the theory out in about three pages, and the other 600 are just examples. Right? It's really pretty amazing. And he calls it, by the way, an abstract. <coughs> yes. Hundreds and hundreds of pages long. So it's pretty amazing. So it hasn't worked, and I think most of you guys know this. There's competition among living things. Um, more things are born or hatched, or I don't know, whatever else things are done. Um, that actually survive and reproduce. Reproduction occurs with variation. Now, the variation itself here, this can be variation characteristics is what I'm talking about. And that variation is heritable. This is a key thing. Everybody knew this. This is the thing. Everybody knew these, a lot of these things already. Everybody knew that as a thing. You just have to look around, even among humans. We're talking about 1850s England. Not every kid lived to be, you know, I mean, it was infant mortality. I know there is now, but not nearly at that same rate. Reproduction occurs with variation. You look at your, you've got kids, they all look a bit different. Yeah. Then we get this step that's like, oh. Now, it wasn't like people who believed that. They would certainly say that, you know, that's you know, good breeding. It's very important. It's a good breeding. It comes from good stock. <laughs> and in fact, you know, Darwin lives, Darwin's a country gentleman in England. You know, and, and he uh, sees that you want to make cows that give a lot of milk, you find a woman that gives a lot of milk, and a bull whose mother gave a lot of milk, and you make them, and you get a calf that gives a lot of milk. Darwin raced pigeons, because that's a very manly pursuit in 1850s England. It's what you do. He had a pigeon guy that worked on his estate. It's a different time. That's back when university professors, that's a good gift. You just need an estate, you have a guy that is your pigeon. Well, I used to have a guy Dwayne ran pigeons for me. I can move them on to other guys. I didn't know stay there. Um, and he would crossbreed pigeons that were fast to make faster pigeons. So this isn't ridiculous, this notion. It's, it's something everybody knew, but they never put it together. And there's no genetics back then. I mean, well, there were genetics. Nobody this, yeah, there, were no, there were no genes. It was amazing. I don't know how many they were. Um, there was no science of genetics. Um, eventually, by the way, Gregor Mendel sends uh, one of his papers, his first paper, to Darwin. He reads Darwin and, oh, well, this is um, good. I'll send him my thing about the, about the peas. <laughs> right? It's going to be, he probably like this. Uh, so, but, but, he knew it wasn't some sort of blending kind of system where you just get an average of the two. He just knew that somehow without reading Mendel yet. So that's pretty impressive. Uh, when you do read what he th how he thinks this works, he's so completely up to lunch, however. He knows it's not a blending thing, but his idea of how, he did use the word genes, about how heritability would work, he knows it's there. His mechanistic account isn't very good, but that's fine. Um, selection, this is the part, again, everybody knew about selection, what Darwin, called, what Darwin called artificial selection, which is what farmers do, which is what pigeon racers do. How do we get different breeds of dogs? It's what people did, right? So selection determines what individuals enter the adult breeding population. This is true if it's natural or if it's artificial. But this selection, the natural selection, is done by the environment. 
those which are best suited reproduce, and they pass those well-suited characteristics on to the young, as I'm sure you know. So you can think of something like Oh, I don't know. How about salt and pepper moths? I've used that example many times. There are moths in, in England that are called salt and pepper moths. They look like they're kind of white with black flecks on them, which explains their name. And of course, they look like bark on some trees. They're, they're, it's a cryptic, they're a cryptic moth. That's a good strategy. Cryptic. Um, then what happens in England in the early 1700s or early 1800s is you start steam engines and stuff, so put smoke into the, into the sky, and then you get soot everywhere. And I don't think we can fathom how dirty the air was in southern England, in England in general, in the mid-1800s, um, especially near the population centers. Like, it was disgusting. People died from it. That, and that's well into the 1950s. You know, you hear about London fog. It's, it's actually smog, uh, and it's from people burning coal to heat their homes. It's from factories burning coal. You'd come home, and you'd be covered in coal dust, like the, it was just in the air. So the trees are, hit, are black. Suddenly, if you're a white and black moth, birds are going, oh, look, there's food. But there is a mutation where you're all black as a moth, and what happens, you, uh, you blend in. So suddenly the, the black and white colors disappear, only the black moths are around. The neat thing that happens is, you get into the mid-late 1950s in the UK, and they start bringing in anti-pollution laws. Things get cleaned up. Trees now look proper again, and suddenly black moths are so obvious that now they get eaten, and it's not a very successful strategy, and now they have salt pepper moths again. And that's what we can see over, because there's historical records of this. Another great example are black cat warblers, kind of bird, and they, they, um, now they, they, they migrate to North Africa. They go from the UK, that's where they live in the summer, and in the winter they fly to North Africa. Fair enough. Um, it's nice and warm there. Right on the coast, it's not all deserty. It's all it's nice and lush. Good food. Now, what happened in a, in a very short period of time, just after the war, World War II, is there was a, a mutation in a, probably a single gene, in fact, almost certainly a single gene, that controlled where they migrate to. And these ones started migrating to Bavaria. So the mountains in southern Germany in the winter. It is colder than Britain. Why would you go there? So normally what happened? Normally they would the ones that did that would die. And they wouldn't pass their genes on. Except guess what happens? A lot of people in southern Germany have bird feeders. It's a thing. So they were successful. So there's a subgroup down black hat warblers that migrate to a colder place in the winter, not a warmer place, because there's food there. And it's, it literally is a single gene because uh, there's been uh, crossbreeding studies and you can look at it and it's a beautiful dominus-dominus recessive relationship 
Uh, you do the, uh, uh, what's his name, square, I always forget the name, and uh, it's perfect. It's exactly the, the, the frequencies you expect. It's gorgeous. And that happened in about, it wasn't like that in the, before the war and then after the war it was like that. It just showed up. It's just amazing. Evolution doesn't usually work that quickly. And of course, normally, if people had feeders out in southern Germany, those birds would be dead and they never would have passed that on. But there's, you know, Helga and, 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 and Jorgen are putting out their, that's some German names I'm using, are, are putting out their, their uh, the bird feeders. And the bird's like, you know, it's really cold here, but the food's good. <laughs> so we come back, right? So there's a couple interesting examples. So it works that reproduction is the key on early survival. In fact, survival of your offspring. But the key thing is survival. So if you survive to be 128 and have no kids, you're not doing as well as I am. Right? Because I have reproduced. Maddie's 10th birthday, those of you who know Maddie, I love embarrassing her like this, so from that one, my daughter, there she is, blowing up her candles. This, by the way, is just before John, we get a second picture. John's, of course, sitting by a computer, even at the age of one and a half. But just before this, he has reached over to the cake and tried to grab it, just like he'd do today. So um, this is like we to start all over. So these, this is uh, so it's, we could have had both of them in there, but one of them would be Maddie getting mad at John, which right justifies himself. All right. So assuming the traits that have made me quote successful, right, will help them. I am more, not I am more uh, fit now than the guys are 120 years old. Fitness isn't about being able to be strong and fast or, and, 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 and such. It, it often is, but it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. I'm going to use those pictures forever. I don't care. I love them. It's a different time. God, they're both older than she is in that picture. Blows me away. Well, it's obvious that she's older than that, but it's Because <laughs> that would be weird. Then she's magic as well. And I'm, I passed that to her. You know, we got that from her mother. Um, okay, survival of the fittest, which is something that Charles Darwin didn't say. You look at origins, you get to say survival of the fittest. It's not his expression. Does it mean, and I know a lot of you know this because you've heard me say it, a lot of you guys have taken biology classes, etc. It doesn't mean biggest and strongest. It often does. It doesn't have to. Um, it means those that have the most offspring who also survive and reproduce. So the answer to our trilogy of problems is descent with modification from a common ancestor, not random modification, modification shaped by natural selection. Some quotes because that's the origins. You see how clear that is, though? What a great writer. That's just very clear. To me, but if it's not clear to you, then questions. One of the things you have to keep in mind is Darwin doesn't say anywhere in evolutionary theory, doesn't say anywhere where the common ancestor comes from. It doesn't say where life came from. That's a great biological question, but it does not. The origin of species is about where species come from. It's not about where life comes from. 
Right. Now, the rules of evolution, the laws, if you want to call them evolution, probably dictate where life comes from, too. Right? You probably start with complicated molecules that can replicate themselves. And as soon as you have a molecule that can replicate itself, all these rules work. Because they're making offspring, which going to be copying errors. It suddenly makes complete sense, right? Can you make, and you say, well, then you have to make organic molecules. Well, I think a lot of you know these simple experiments that have been done where you take what the Earth was like about three and a half billion years ago, you take the elements that are available, and there was a lot of thunder and lightning action back then, and you just run electricity through it, and you select it, well, spontaneously, it's not spontaneous. You get organic molecules. So, the sort of primordial soup that people talk about, it was around back then, the Earth was mostly water, and you've got hydrogen and oxygen, of course, water, you've got carbon molecules, and you start zapping electricity through that all the time, you end up with complicated organic molecules. It's not a huge step to think you get a complicated organic molecule that can replicate itself. Because we know there are molecules that can replicate themselves, they're called RNA and DNA. Right? So you can get something pretty complicated, and as soon as that happens, you're going to start getting life. And it's going to work this way on a planet, that's the other neat thing. And in, 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 in Selfish Gene, Dawkins says, um, in science fiction books and stories, when the aliens meet us, they always ask us if we know about advanced things in physics and things like that. And that's not what they're going to say. They're going to say, you guys figure out evolution by natural selection yet? Because that's, it, it answers the question of where do we come from? The ultimate question, right? So again, there's not, and this is one of the cases where when you're arguing with someone who doesn't accept evolution, um, and they say, well, it doesn't explain where life comes from, you go, I know. Or the other one, what about the Big Bang Theory? No, that's not this. This is much later, idiot. Um, this is about how things, where species come from, and how they change over time. And that's something, if you want, if someone wants to take an anti-science idea and say that nothing, none of these, nothing's true, that's fine, but it, has, it answers a very specific set of questions. All right, questions about this? I think most of you guys know this, but just making sure. We got basically three different types of selection. Of, of, of natural selection, there's also sexual selection, which we'll eventually talk about. So the first type here is going to be called, it's called directional selection. This is what most of us think about when we think about how, select, how natural selection works. What this is, is we have a trait that has a characteristic. So here's the, the, the classification of some sort. And Here's the number of individuals. We get a, a frequency distribution. Okay. One of the extremes then is selected for. So for some reason, being over here is good. So the salt and pepper moth example is great. They were rare, the black moths, which is a great for men. It's like black crows covered in. 
Um, nothing. But it's rare. But there's a shift in the environment. A shift in the environment. And if that happens, that rare thing becomes exceedingly advantageous. And you get selection going in that one direction. That's why it's called directional selection. So an extreme value was selected for it. That's a term you'll hear, and many of you probably know. Another recent example here is human brain size. And I don't mean within species. It's hard to do stuff like this within species. It's really hard. Um, for example, even if you correct for body weight, men have bigger brains than women. But we don't score any different on average on intelligence tests. So it's hard to say that within humans, brain size matters. Right? doesn't seem to. However, we can look at different species of humans, right? So, Gaster, Heidelbergensis, Neanderthal, and we can look at the size of their brains and realize that as time went on, brains got bigger. In fact, Neanderthal had a bigger brain than we do, I think. See a lot of them around anymore, though. <laughs> so it's interesting with humans, we're not stronger, we're not faster, but we're smarter. We're smarter. We're smarter and we can sweat. Those are, that's basically the two key things, right? And we, we're not covered in fur, so we can run just a little tiny bit longer. And that makes us pretty special. So that's a really good example. You can look at traits conceivably within humans as well. Uh, the, the evolution of language. You can see how when language arrives, and this is cool, how the hell do we know if there was language? Because you can actually look at the uh, inside of the skull of a fossil and see if there was space where it it's not like the brain leaves a cast, but your head, the inside of your head, has a shape to accommodate your brain. And we can then take a look and see, is there, was there a Broca's area there? And we know about a million years ago, things like Ergaster probably did kind of speak, or at least had the beginnings of a Broca's area. You can see how that is clearly going to be selected for heaven. And you're going to select against ones that don't have language ability, right? And in this course, we can think about, again, because evolution works very slowly, um, being somewhat aggressive as a male human would be selected for. Being passive wouldn't be, again, a long time ago. It's not so much now, but this isn't, you know, evolution fights the last war, not the, not the current war. Okay. Now, there's normalizing selection or stabilizing selection. It's called either of those. I don't know why I had too much. So stabilizing or normalizing selection, what happens is the, ex the extremes are selected against and the middles are selected for. 
this tends to be going way back in, in evolutionary history. Things like symmetry or vertebrates having two eyes. Right? Why is two eyes good but not three eyes better? Two eyes is good what? Compared to one. Go ahead, just talk. Well, oh, compared to three, but I mean, like, three is just extra energy. Like, yeah. You don't need Three is extra energy you don't need because it's eyes are expensive and they get infected easily. Right? You can look at cave dwelling fish, for example, that have no eyes. Why do they have no eyes? Well, they have no eyes because eyes are expensive. And they don't, they don't give them any advantage. Having a third eye wouldn't give us any advantage. Two is better than one because two allows you to see depth. Right? So you don't see a lot of cyclopses in the human beings. Most of those old myths are myths. So they're called myths. They show up in stories, right? Most animals are symmetrical. I still don't know why. I've never understood that, but I can't see the reason. I don't know, it just happened. And once something's there, you might end up the case like, you know, why would you, what would the advantage to not being symmetrical be? I don't know. Disruptive selection is kind of a fun one because disruptive selection, the middle is selected against and the extremes are selected for. So you start out with this, but you end up with this. Now again, I can't think of anything within humans that would be like this. I can think of things within, or there's a very classic example, within animals that can be like this. Or frankly, not even animals, within living things. Because that might be, this might explain why you get two sexes. And not three, and not one. So, if the trait is gamete size, okay, the trait is gamete size, we've got two different mating types, okay, eventually. We started with the gamete size, and they're all that size. Now, the extremes are here. Here. But this is the average. Most of the, and these are, this goes way back, okay? This isn't human sexes. We didn't start out being asexual and then, no, so it's a long time ago. What's an advantage to this? To make giant candies? What's an advantage to having really big candies? Really big sexes? Anybody? More resources. More resources. Are you going to say the same thing? Yeah. yeah. Resources. Right. This is good. This is this is going to have a lot of resources, right? <coughs> What's the advantage to being really small? Okay. You can make lots. Make lots of. It. This 
has, you can make some of them, and they have some resources. This loses. You can make one of these, maybe a lot a month, or you can make $300 million a day. Right? They don't actually, in humans, you don't actually make one of these a month. You're born with all your eggs. Women. Guys, we're all, and this is going to be kind of creepy, we're all making sperm right now. It's okay. Men are useful as sperm carriers and for lawn maintenance. Basically all we do. <laughs> so, look at me, and, and, you know, even with humans, now, think about birds. Think of the size of a, of a, of a, a sex cell in a bird, let's see, for you know, sperm that are the same size probably as, you know, human sperm. And then you've got, you ever seen a chicken egg? Those are big gametes. Wow, that's a big difference. But there's a lot of nutrient in there, right? So clearly, this thing's going to not work out. <laughs> this wins, and this wins. There's two different strategies, being, being male and being female. In fact, one of the ways you can classify male and female biologically, because I don't know if you know this, but like in birds, the males are uh, hetero, uh, the males are homozygous on sex cells, the females are heterozygous. Okay, it's weird, but it's like that. So it's not about X Y and X X. Nope. It's about gamete size. Who is the gametes? Well, the bigger one, that's the female. So this is probably where that came from. It's the best explanation. Because what would the third one be? If we were like, why not three? This middle one, and this isn't as good as either of these. These two beat that strategy every time. It's so whatever you see on, um, it was an episode of Star Trek uh, Enterprise, which I, I loved that show. I'm the guy. I'm the one person that loved that Star Trek series. Um, and there was an episode where there was a, a, a species with three sexes. And I was like, but how? Explain how that would have evolved. And as a friend of mine, actually, I was saying this when the show was on, and he said, well, you know, it, it, it could be different. Said, no, it can't be different with that their planet is. <laughs> Explain me. I'm drawing pictures of gametes. And he's like, you're not thinking it that seriously. He's like, yeah, this is an interesting story. And it's interesting, if you look at gamete size, now look, and as a strategy, a whole lot of other things fall out of this. A whole lot of other characteristics. If you're making one, you better be damned careful about how many of these nick, nick, get, get together with you. Right? You gotta kind of choose sense, right? If you're making these, lots of these, we can make lots and lots, then what's that going to lead to? Well, I'll just make with anything that moves. Right? And if you look at the way that most animals that have, in fact, this is so, this is almost ubiquitous to the point where animals that don't behave like this are really interesting. Because Females make the choices. Males don't, are not choosy at all. 
right? That happens in humans, that happens in lions, that happens in everything. I'm not saying the males don't try to force themselves. Sure, we know that happens. Force copulation, sure. But they have to force, don't they? It's not, there aren't females that want to call it promiscuity, which is a value-laden term, but you know what I mean, is much higher in males than it is in females in almost all species, including males. But it makes sense because of the size of your gametes. Now, again, like I was saying the other day, that is not saying, well, that is a justification. No, it's not. It's called an explanation. Does it make it morally right or wrong? But it's kind of interesting, right? All right. Questions about that? It's pretty cool, eh? I love that stuff. So other evolutionary theories. Lamarckism. Lamarckism is one of my favorites. It was invented by a guy named, who had a long, long name. A French guy who's like, you know, like old, old tiny French guys had like, no woman had names as long. It was like that. Baron, the Marquis, the blah, 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 the 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 Lamarck. So Lamarck's idea, and this was a pretty popular one, was the inheritance of acquired characteristics. So it's like giraffes really were hungry and saw some leaves went, oh! and their necks stretched, and then they passed that on to their young. It's easy to test this theory. You know what you do? You take a bunch of mice, you cut their tails off, and see if their young have tails. Guess what? They have tails. You don't, please don't test that. That's pretty neat. We know this isn't true. Um, a lot of people even today think this is how evolution works. You'll hear people say this a lot. Um, you know, in 500 years or 1,000 years, we'll all have giant heads and tiny little bodies. Why? <laughs> Why would that be? <laughs> and it's all because of use, right? Well, well, you'll use your brain a lot, and you won't use your body very much, and we'll pass that characteristic on. No. No, it doesn't work that way. Cable and fish don't have don't use their eyes so they disappear. No. As I was saying before, eyes are extensive metabolically. They're complicated things to build. They get infected easily, and if they're giving you no benefit, the mutation that shows up, the eyeless mutation is going to win. We don't use our appendix so it's disappearing. No. We don't need our appendix anymore, and it can rupture and kill you. So having the smaller your appendix gets, because you pass it on, the less likely it is to get infected, because it's smaller. So the smaller appendix eventually shows up and wins. Now, nowadays it's not as big a problem when you get appendicitis, they just take it out. Right? They can do that in the waiting room now. <laughs> No, we got that. Let me go home. It's not quite like that. He used to kill people. And the scientists used to kill people. So you can see how, and it still does now and then. Pretty rare though. In the West, at least. Yeah. yeah. I'm just curious. So how long would it probably take for like the appendix to actually disappear? It does seem to do something, by the way. Um, there's gut flora in there that probably have some function, not the same function they used to have, which is probably digestion cellulose. 
Remember Boise Ivy got an eight to eight six. Um, he probably had a big appendix. But it is doing something, but the advantage, obviously, of, of it being there isn't very big because you could live perfectly fine without one. How long would that take? Hundreds and thousands of years. Oh. Yeah. Especially considering now we can just intervene and, and, and deal with it. Yeah, that's right. right. Now, people often say springs are going to just point people. I've heard it said evolution now has stopped in humans. In humans. Because we have, we have medicine. Because we have treatments for disease. Because we have social programs. Right? So poor people that, I mean, this may not sound nice, but a lot of poor people aren't as bright as rich people. It just works that way. It's nice. On average, I'm not saying there aren't really poor people, Barack Obama movement. Right? But on average. So people say, well, I mean, you stopped evolution. And then you get that movie, Idiocracy, which is funny, but a little silly. I do love, you know, it's got electrolytes. It's what plants crave from the guy that I don't think plants do. <laughs> the smartest guy in the world, because he's got 106 IQ. It's a funny movie. Um, but. I think it's going to, it changes how it works is all. There's still selective pressures. Still selective pressures. Right. Oh, I should come back to this just for a second. Uh, I forgot something. What's the advantage of, because they have to share, with sexual reproduction, you get Instead of being a copy of yourself, which is, isn't that the best way? You have 100% of your genes shared to the next generation. You have half and half. What's the advantage to doing that? Versus making, you know, what's the advantage to sharing genetic material besides the fact that it's fun? I'm sure it wasn't for single cell organisms. What's the advantage? Because the disadvantage is you're losing half of your genes going into the environment. That's a pretty big disadvantage. It must be one hell of an advantage. More variety. More variety. Yeah. So you end up with you get genetic, you get any change in the environment, it's easy to it's gonna be a little easier to react to it. When would we expect asexual reproduction? In an animal. Or in a plant will help. Well we expect asexual please. Maybe when the environment doesn't Yeah. And in fact there are asexually reproducing animals. My favorite example is the Arizona whiptail lizard. Um, I think we all have our favorite uh, asexually reproducing animal, and that's, that's, that's mine. Um, but it lives in Arizona. Arizona is a desert. Deserts don't change much. And you know what the thing is? The whiptail Arizona whiptail lizard, in fact, evolved from a sexually reproducing species. And how do we know this? Well, first of all, genetic studies. But we also know this by looking at their how they reproduce. One female mounts another female, and then they both lay eggs. That's obviously a vestige of sexual behavior. Right? But that's pretty rare. So you've got all these lines of Arizona whiptail lizards, and they're all just everybody's, everybody's daughter. So they're clones. I forgot to mention that. So, this is a popular notion, the Lamarckian notion. And in fact, it got to the point where in um, 
a Stalinist Soviet Union, not under Lenin, but under Stalin, um, there can be no struggle in nature. This was a thing. You should always politicize science. It's a great idea. That was sarcasm. Um, so it was official policy of Soviet Union that Lamarckism is true, and Darwin is, West, is, is a bourgeois Western decadent thing. Yeah. Bourgeois, bourgeois pseudoscience. They say that a lot. No, they used to. They probably do again. Hell of a guy. Don't say anything bad. It'll probably date here soon. So, in the like 30s and 40s, people, biologists, and Russia's a pretty big country, and they had some good biologists, and they were told you can't teach evolution, and we're going to teach Lamarckism. Good, good idea. <laughs> so, what they would do now, I realize that the forced collectivization in the 1930s is one of the things that caused basically uh, a genocide against Ukrainian people. But another thing that caused all the bad harvests was they would use these Lamarckian strategies to make grain that would grow in Siberia. They would take grain, put it in a very cold room for a while, then plant it. Yeah, that'll work. <sighs> See, po politics should never enter science. They should just be, they should stay 500 feet from each other at all times. It should be a restraining order. So this was a very popular idea that uh, obviously it's wrong, but a Darwinian um, evolution knocked that out. The idea of orthogenesis, the idea of some goal or a plan. The Cylons were made by men. There are many copies and they have a plan. Um, I've just started rewatching now, so I think again. I go for, we'll watch a Galactica, then a Sopranos, then a Galactica, then a Sopranos. That's what I'm doing right now. In my free time, not at work. Well, it works. Um, <laughs> both quite dark. Differences, Sopranos can be funny. Galactica is never funny. It's only funny when you laugh at Colonel Ty because he's hammered. But I mean, that's not even funny. It's just sad. <laughs> Sopranos can be funny sometimes, except that you realize I'm cheering for a, a psychopath. Oh, Tony's so cool. He's a psychopath. That's right. I forgot. This is the idea that there's a plan or a goal to evolution. And people love this. This is something. How many people here were told in school that there is an evolutionary ladder? Has anybody told that? Yeah. yeah, there's no ladder. You know that now, right? You know it's a tree. It's a tree of life. It's not like there's a ladder. This is why I hate when people are saying that one thing is more evolved than something else. It's like, no, this thing works. So it's like, yeah, sharks have been the same for 100 million years. You know why? Because they're pretty perfectly adapted to the niche they're in. So let's just, why would evolution mess with them? You know, there's nothing you would select in any other direction. Um, so you get this idea that, you know, you start out with plants and then you get to maybe fish and then you get probably to, uh, I don't know, Birds are in there somewhere, and then you get to like uh, the vertebrates, not vertebrates, but sorry, uh, mammals, and then you get to primates, and you get to us, and then angels, and then God. <laughs> and it's like everything's trying to become us. It's a very human centric idea. The response to this is what makes you think we're so freaking special? <laughs> you know, we are pretty special animals. There's no. No other animal walks around doing this, what we're doing here. Other animals don't think about why they exist and don't come up with theories to explain them. 
And if that happens, you end up with a planet where apes evolved from men. Why? It's absurd. So, it's Charlton Heston, ladies and gentlemen, 1969, Planet of the So, this, I was taught something to this effect in high school out. Not about the, the, the gods and the angels. That, people talk about that. But the idea that it's like a ladder. The weird thing was, my biology teacher taught, perfectly taught us about genetic engineering and recombinant DNA. We did that, and he got it. It was great. But he didn't seem to understand evolution by natural selection very well, which is a really strange thing. I imagine he's dead now, so it all balances out, really. <laughs> I figure he probably is. He was like my age when I was 18. Right? He's four years old. He could be so up. But I doubt it. Chances are he's 89, 90 years old. Still misunderstanding evolution. Right? <laughs> yeah, but he understands that we call it DNA. And like he told us about splicing genes into E. coli. To, it was incredible. And I remember getting to, uh, I was in graduate school, and we were learning about that in my, our genetics class. And I was sitting there and going, oh, yeah, I learned this in high school. And people going, what? <laughs> Prof was like, I, I, Martin Ralph, the guy that I should do with the hamsters. And I said after the class, I said, yeah, I learned that stuff in, in high school. He said, they teach this in high school? I said, well, I, I really, I said, I didn't understand evolution, though. He said, no. <laughs> so it's very strange. It's a very strange combination. And the teacher was named Mr. Slow. What's his name? <laughs> uh, he used to make up exams. Like, make, we have a test at the midterm. This week, the So, sort of like first year university level test. Um, he would make up the test, like a midterm, he'd do 70 minute classes. He'd start with the test, the thing, like, like, oh, right, there's a test today. And he'd write up five questions on the board. Like, he hadn't thought of them yet. And, he, and they were great questions. Like, I wish, when I develop a test, I wish I could do that. I was making up a little practice math lunch for my son yesterday. I found out he has a math test that he had told me. We're doing it in school. Nothing. <laughs> and I'm going to get emails from the future now. It's right. Math test tomorrow. Oh, thanks for letting me know because my son didn't know. But yeah, I make it up like simple things about the order of operations and square roots and factoring. And that took me 15 minutes. Mr. Slow was like, okay, so you got this and this. And just like, I'm going to put you on, I don't know, it's uh, 20 minutes. And then he goes, interesting guy. Just didn't understand evolution. <laughs> Or maybe I took the wrong stuff out of it. I guess that's possible. But it seems unlikely. I sound very bright. Um, okay, another silly idea, uh, one that you may have heard uh, of, of course, is intelligent uh, design. Well, it's not doing this thing. That's right. The last slide doesn't work. Wait a second. It's not. How's this work? Wait. What? That's weird. So we're just going to go to the last slide. That's very strange. Play from current slide. Well, that? Okay, here it comes. Right. That's weird. That did that. So it's intelligent design. Um, okay, the idea of sort of creationism, especially like uh, young Earth creationism, which is the idea that the world actually is 6,000 years old, is rejected by all but the most extreme religious, and again, it's not extreme religious, because it's not true. The Pope accepts evolution. I imagine he's religious. I don't think he's faking. I don't think he goes into his Pope 
House? House? The Vatican, the Pope House. Yeah, they call it in German. The Pope House. So you can the Pope House. Um, no, it's like the Vatican, the palace. What's the people palace? I don't know. I'm not Catholic. But I technically actually am. I can technically elect the Pope because I'm a male baptized Catholic. Atheist Pope. <laughs> Take the people named Chad, or perhaps Todd. Change the hat. Or a ball cap or a junkie beret. Actually, I kind of got a lot of use for this new guy because he, he doesn't like, get dressed up all in his own And I think that's pretty cool. I, there's something okay about that guy. He accepts evolution and natural, so the Catholic Church does. I, so it's not a religion, it's about yeah. a version of it, we'll say. Okay? So I, when I say religious, that's not the right. Not the right word. Fundamentalist? I guess. I guess. Um, but I know people that are pretty conservative Christians that go, well, this is 6,000 years old. What are you nuts? And they also say, no, it is evolution. So it's, it's, even, it's a subset. It's an anti-science. I don't know what it is. I, I, there's got to be a word. But I don't know what the word is. I really don't. So, you got young Earth creationism, and that's rejected, except by like uh, Ken Colvin, the tax the tax who's in jail right now, who has a PhD from a place you can order a PhD. Or Ken Ham, the guy from the Creation Museum, you know about the science side of data? Yeah. I don't have two minds about that. One of them is I've watched it, and I think Bill Nye owned the guy. Yes. On the other hand, why give him the time of day? Like, you've worked with, with Isabel, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, if a person came into class and said, I believe in alchemy and I can turn uh, lead into gold, would she say, well, let's debate it? No, she'd say, very nicely, because she's a very nice woman. You're an idiot. <laughs> right? She wouldn't say it like that. She would say it quietly to herself and say some really nice thing. She's so nice. She's too nice, right? <laughs> She wouldn't come, well, really, but an interesting viewpoint. She'd say, what? Right? Or an astronomer, you know, someone comes up to Neil deGrasse Tyson and says, so how about that, how about that, uh, the moon, and it's rising with the cancer, and that affects your, you know, like, the astrology. They don't, you go, this isn't a discussion, go away. It's not astronomy. So part of me is like, why even talk to these guys? On the other hand, it's kind of nice watching them get trashed, but I don't think it convinces anybody of anything. That's the Right? It's not this false equivalence. It's not like, you know, maybe there are people that still, I don't think there are. Uh, in, for example, in the Bible, it says that the sky is a firmament, which means a coating. Okay? Now, you can't trash that because it was written so long ago that that made sense. That's a very sensible explanation. It's a black blanket. That makes sense. Okay? So, we now know that it's not. But there aren't guys that say, yeah, well, space, uh, Station where they have big hooks that hold on to that big blanket, and do we have a guy that comes on when they, uh, a science supporter does? Well, for the other side of the story, where we we bring flat earthers in, there still is a flat Earth society, by the way. <laughs> Earth has four corners. One of them is at uh, Twillingate, Newfoundland. If you've been there, you might believe it, but. <laughs> Full of people with ridiculous accents and uh, just rocks. 
I, there, there, there'd be dragons here, you know. <laughs> You've been to Newfoundland, yeah? I'm from Newfoundland. Really? Where from? Uh, I, I lived there for like six years. Okay, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, well, my son was born in Cornerbrook. Oh, okay. Yeah, we lived in Cornerbrook, um, left for, from 98 to 2004. Okay. Oh, yeah, I never really used to live in Okay. That should be using the expression that I don't need this one. Oh, yeah, I mean, I. It was a strange place to live when you're not from there. <laughs> but I'm really glad you lived there. I'll say that. Also, no one here knows what snow is, do they? The amount of snow we can get. We used to get snow in corner boxes. <laughs> that lot. Right? Yeah, whereas people in Newfoundland would do what cold means. So it sort of balances everything out, right? You don't have an accent at all, though. Yes. <laughs> yes, fine. When I came back here, when I, when I came here and started teaching from Newfoundland, people didn't know where I was from. They thought I was from that somewhere. Because I used to say things like car and place. Because after six years, everybody talks that way, so I started talking about What the hell was it? What did they get on there? Oh, yeah, flat earthers and all that stuff. Right. So intelligent design isn't like old earth creationism, or sorry, young earth creationism. It's kind of like old earth creationism. Old earth creationism is the idea that the earth is 5.3 billion years old. Sure. Sure, that's, we'll take that as a given. That's there's geology. But then they say, and God did everything. And their evidence is complicated stuff. Right? Like eyes. Eyes are complicated. And they'll say things like, well, how could an eye just to, and they don't understand that eyes don't just come out of nowhere. It's a long, arduous process. All this is, is it's a political thing. Um, I think philosophically you can talk about God and stuff like that's great, but I don't think it's like you don't go to church and ask them to, to, for experimental evidence of God. <laughs> right? You don't walk in and say, uh, that's all good. But I'd like to see, with P is less than 0.05, proof of God. No, people that say that probably are going to be leaving the church soon. Right? They're going to go, I don't think I'm going to go anymore. So really all this is, it's, it's not a scientific theory. Why is it not a scientific theory? Because you can't find evidence of the supernatural with science. the controversy. There is no controversy. There's none. The, uh, what's called the Discovery Institute put out a list of scientists who disagree with Dar Darwinism. So, a group of biologists started up a list of, uh, called a list of guys named Steve who accept evolution. <laughs> and they have to be biologists, not just any kind of scientists. And they've already got like 20 times more Steves than they have people. Which is kind of amazing. Um, one of Brandon's friends, whose name's Steve, you know, see him on Facebook, so he's on that list. It's pretty cool. So, I mean, this isn't a scientific theory. It's misunderstanding what the word theory, when people see it, theory of natural selection, theory of evolution, 
They don't know what a sine root theory means. You guys all know what that means. Right? It's not a hunch, not a guess. Gravity is just a theory as well. Should we teach intelligent falling? Right? Probably not. See, this is just adding an and this is one of these things, and you guys have probably all taken the research methods class or, or something like it. Adding an extra level of complexity to something doesn't help it. Because they all accept, by the way, all these ideas of, 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 of selections, of directional selection and disruptive selection. They, 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 all that stuff's true. They, they say, you're sure. Plus God. It's like, yeah, that's not good. It doesn't help us. Because you're just making it more complicated, and we didn't need the extra level of, of, of complication to explain something. So it's a complete misunderstanding of how science is supposed to work and how it actually does work. Other questions? I have already questions. All right. Is that thanks, guys. Sorry about missing this one on the way.
This podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.